Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Anthropological Airwaves, a venue for highlighting the polyphony of voices across anthropology's four fields and the infinite and often overlapping subfields within them. Anthropological Airwaves is the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is Season 5, Episode 3, Dismantling the Ivory Tower, Open Mic Edition, Part 1. My name is Anar Parikh. I'm the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist and the executive producer of this show. This month, we're bringing you the first episode in a mini-series developed, produced, and edited by American Anthropologist contributing editor Nellie Aboud. The Contributing Editor Program is an editorial initiative for anthropologists at various professional stages in their careers to work closely with the journal's managing editor and with members of the editorial board to develop skills and build networks for their future careers inside and outside academia. Over the course of a two-year term, contributing editors gain insight into the various facets of academic publishing and work on projects that speak to their thematic and geographic interests. Nellie is a freelance museum educator based in Beirut, Lebanon, and a contributing editor with the archaeology section at American Anthropologist. During the past year, Nellie has been working on putting together a pair of episodes about the production of archaeological knowledge in Lebanon, as told by young Lebanese archaeologists working in field and museum contexts. She's here to tell you about the series and today's guest. Welcome to Dismantling the Ivory Tower. My name is Nelly Aboud. I am a contributing editor in the archaeology section at American Anthropologist. In this anthropological airwave series, Lebanese archaeologists will discuss the exclusivity of archaeological knowledge and management systems in Lebanon and its influence on their careers as early or mid-career professionals. In Lebanon, higher-positioned archaeologists and museum workers rule this world from an ivory tower, making archaeological knowledge unreachable by the majority. This is contrasting with the new generation of archaeologists who are trying to change the status quo by spreading archaeological knowledge and expertise to a wider audience. Alas, most of the time the system does succeed in absorbing or rejecting them. In two episodes, I will be giving the floor to young voices to discuss the system characteristics and the ways in which the older generation of Lebanese archaeologists have separated themselves from the dominant political and social dialogue in Lebanon. I will be investigating these themes by asking two early and mid-career Lebanese archaeologists four identical questions about their main career concerns how the social and political context in Lebanese archaeology affect their concerns, how archaeology and cultural heritage is taught, displayed, and shared in Lebanon today, and their thoughts on how to make archaeological knowledge more widely accessible in Lebanon. The recordings you will hear strive to create an open mic effect with minimal interruptions to give each guest the spotlight to describe, in their own words, their career struggles and the interaction between archaeology and social political identity in Lebanon. Each episode transcript will be available in both English and Arabic. In this first episode, archaeologist Lorraine Mawad will be sharing with us her career stories and her own views regarding the ivory tower seen from underneath the rubble of an excavation site. Lorraine holds an MA in Arts and Archaeology from the Lebanese University. 
She worked for 19 years as a field archaeologist on various sites in Lebanon and Syria, and she studied bone remains from several sites located in downtown Beirut. She also worked at the Archaeology Museum of the American University of Beirut and at the University of Paramand as a research assistant. Since 2021, Lorine is no longer working in Lebanon, but keeps on pursuing her field and research work away from the Lebanese sphere. Hi Nelly, and thank you for inviting me to this episode of the podcast. We've known each other for almost 22 years now, since we started our studies in archaeology at the Lebanese University, moved to work in one of the Beirut excavation sites, and then to work at the University of Balamand, where you were in charge of the ethnographic permanent exhibition, and I was trying to put some order in the messed up data of the ANFA excavations. If you'd asked me to describe in one sentence the situation of archaeology and heritage in Lebanon, you'd get a very undiplomatic reply on my part. Instead, I'll restate something Sarah Liafi, a Lebanese political activist, said, and I quote, Even if you were to do a Hollywood movie out of this, the producers will probably tell you to tone it down a bit because it doesn't look very realistic. Since I've decided to quit working in archaeology in Lebanon, I don't really care or follow what's happening in the archaeology scene in the country. I can say that for the past year or so, I was able to take a step back, relax, and look at the big picture more clearly. It was merely impossible to do so when you're working a full-time job, you're in a toxic work environment, and there's a whole country collapsing around you. The career concerns I had at the time were the same as any archaeology museum or heritage worker in Lebanon goes through. I'll just mention a couple, even though I know there are many more concerns out there, and they vary from one person to another. The first concern is too obvious to even mention. It's uh, find a job and get paid. Okay, you got your shiny diploma. What's next? The picture that university professors paint about the archaeology job market in Lebanon has nothing to do with reality. The actual percentage between graduates and job opportunities and openings is very disproportionate because full-time jobs within government and private institutions are few and far-fetched. That's why most jobs in archaeology are either by volunteering or temporary and seasonal jobs and are often limited to commercial archaeology. So to avoid staying idle, graduates end up accepting anything available on the market. It's a catch-22 situation in which you can't be too picky. In addition, the job crisis in archaeology is closely related to the economic and security situation of the country. There's either too much to do or nothing at all. Eventually, most graduates who are working towards a lifetime career in archaeology or museums or heritage will realize that they will have to leave and change careers. As for salaries, Unless you're a permanent resident in the ivory tower, jobs in archaeology don't pay well. And benefits, if any, come as a bad joke. Getting a raise in the form of compliments doesn't pay the bills. 
volunteering for the love of science or because we're passionate about archaeology also doesn't pay the bills. And in the end, we get called a bunch of materialists because from their point of view, we're asking for too much. The second concern is uh, advancement within a group. The ivory tower top floor residents consider that the field is theirs and we're all intruding. This mindset alone reflects how institutions are run and how policies are written. This group, mostly originating from aristocratic and bougie families with good ties to the political class, surround themselves with people who talk like them, who think like them, who act like them, and in a way end up looking like them. It's a model of self-reproduction entangled with self-preservation with a sprinkle of political inheritance. And in order to stay in power, they've established unwritten policies in which, in which they decide who's in and who's out. They benefit the people in their inner circle and screw over everybody else. That's why most archaeology graduates don't meet the requirements or conform to the specifications of the perfect assistant. The perfect assistant is a person programmed to work on autopilot. The perfect assistant is a person willing to shut their brain off and do as they're told if they wish to keep their job. Their sole purpose is to look good with the decor of the office and never make the boss look bad. They practically become part of the furniture. That's why advancement within a group or any institution solely rests on the boss's decision and rarely on a person's qualifications. Third point, communication is not the key, comprehension is. This circle of deciding elite fears change and being put out of their comfort zone. Everything new is bad if they can't understand it. They want things to be done their way, the way they were taught to do it. And the only good ideas are the ones they come up with. They never view others as capable human fellows who explore or view the world differently than them. You can try to communicate all you want, but if they don't understand what you're saying, it's like talking to a brick wall. They're either dumb or just plain dumb because the initial idea wasn't there and got refused from the start. They pretend to move forward when in fact they're not. They are still dragging the same problems and feuds and squabbles and debates and conflicts and disputes and all of that from the 1900s into 2022, just tossing it at the next person in their path. Not only are they not equipped to deal with 21st century archaeology, but what's more exasperating is that they are able to complicate very simple things. And what they call new or change are various methodologies, theories, protocols, and ideas that have been used in the field since eons ago, but never affected them. It's no wonder if they still can't figure out the difference between an inventory, a database, and a typology, or still consider paleontology as a subdiscipline of archaeology, among other things. To summarize the answer, I will read a paragraph from an article written by Aparnabasu in 1989, entitled Colonial Education, a Comparative Approach. 
and I quote, uh, once the dominant powers had established their military supremacy, a new order and civil society had to be created and coercion had to be replaced or supplemented by persuasion. It was necessary for the rulers to create a class of collaborators between them and, them and those whom they governed. Since there was a cultural gap between the rulers and the ruled, it was difficult to do so unless the two developed a common language of communication. There had to be a homogeneous cultural space over which persuasion and coercion could operate. In the establishment of this hegemonic power, education played a crucial role. Education was supposed to reinforce culturally what colonial policies aimed at achieving economically and politically. End of quote. To put things more in context, interest in Lebanese archaeology started when the country was under Ottoman rule and continued during the French mandate. Under Ottoman rule, the Direction General of Imperial Museums in Constantinople had a complete monopoly over the antiquities of the colonies. The decree of 1909 gave the Ottoman administration the full right to acquire any object invaluable and ship it straight to Constantinople. They even established a reward system that compensates any person who finds and declares the discovery of archaeological artifacts, thus encouraging what we refer to now as looting and illegal digs. During the mandate, the French decided to keep the already existing Ottoman administration system. They just changed minor things and adapted them to their own demands. In 1919, the Service of Antiquities in Syria and Lebanon was created, providing French archaeologists with complete scientific rights over the archaeological heritage of both countries. It wasn't until 1926 that a new law was adopted to replace the Ottoman one that was still in use. And in November 1933, a new decree relating to antiques regulations in Syria and Lebanon was created. It's the same decree that is still in use today. When the French troops left and Lebanon got, it, got its independence in 1943, they had already incorporated a blueprint of how the educational and socio-political systems should look like. They made sure that future Lebanese archaeologists would inherit the French apparatus of education in archaeology in a model of extracting institutions. Approaches to history, archaeology, and heritage tend to focus on a colonizer-colonized dynamic. And traces of colonialism are evident in archaeology courses, where even ideas are more Western than Middle Eastern. To give a few examples, in one course we are taught to be proud of our Phoenician ancestry. Yet in another course we are told to admire, let's say, Alexander the Great, who brought philosophy, democracy, and Greek architecture to our shores. But wasn't that the same Alexander who destroyed every single Phoenician city-state on his way to Egypt? And in a third course we have to appreciate the ingenuity of the Roman emperors. 
Do you mean the same Roman emperors who invaded their region to profit from the resources of the territory? Okay, I know it shouldn't be an old black and white POV all the time. Like this group was good and this group was bad. And because history makes most people look bad, it was better to adopt a whitewashed and sanitized version of it and present certain historical characters in a more glorious light. The established system also made sure that archaeology only flourished within its own academic bubble, away from politics, away from the social context surrounding it, when in fact it's very difficult, almost impossible to separate them. Even after the Lebanese war got wrapped up, nobody thought of reforming the system so it would adapt to the new socio-political context of the country. It was business as usual in the ivory tower. While useful to a certain extent, these approaches were unsatisfactory regarding the history, archaeology, heritage, etc. of Lebanon in a post-colonial, post-war, and post-uncertainty context. If we take, for example, the 1933 law regarding antiquities, this law is so old and so detached from reality that it can be interpreted and twisted in so many ways that it becomes incompre incomprehensible, and in some cases it even contradicts itself. Even if some decrees and clauses were added over the last 20 years, most were tailored to benefit specific political agendas. The most undisputable example is the case of the Beirut downtown excavations. It was described as, quote-unquote, the world's largest work site of urban archaeology by Alain Charles Lefebvre in the 1995 issue of Archaeologia. Cute title, but it came at a very high cost. They made sure to put the right people in the right place to execute their agendas and figure in their publicity stunts, while opposition voices were swiftly shushed or absorbed into the system by giving them a small parcel to dig. So if they needed someone to remove archaeology remnants in the blink of an eye to build a monstrosity, they could always find someone most obliged to do so. In the midst of the urban excavation rush in downtown Beirut, several sites were hastily bulldozed during the night, and archaeologists would arrive the next morning to a huge empty hall. In other cases, sewage pipes got diverted to flood entire sites and make work impossible. Similar examples of malpractice weren't only limited to the capital. Swift and mindless decisions got delivered as well, allowing, let's say, a political figure in the Matan area to dismantle a Roman temple and reuse the blocks to build the retaining walls of his garden, or others to smuggle artifacts in and out of the country with ease. Laws, permits, and decrees get created or omitted according to specific political agendas and there are tons of those hovering in administrative limbo. The reason for this chaos is the tendency to cling to outdated laws, non-existent methodologies and protocols, and mismanagement of data and capacities. 
The thing is, when you're funded by a government or an institution, then automatically you're shackled and conditioned by whatever that they tell you to do or say. They don't just micromanage your work, but your way of thinking and appropriate both. And since uh, fighting the system is impossible to do when someone is already shackled to it, a few shy attempts labeled as protection of cultural heritage were made. Most got immediately sucked back into the system, other vanished like nothing ever happened, and other got blacklisted. Social and political movements are not a new trend. They've been around for like forever. They just gained viewership due to the prevalence of the internet and the ability of the public to interact and share their opinion on so-and-so subject. A socio-political context, to a certain degree, influences the morals of a nation as well. Like, should we keep that thing in place or should we remove it? Should we allow that thing to happen or should we fight it? To understand how archaeology courses are taught at university, I'll have to go back to how history courses were and are still taught in schools. History courses in schools are the perfect definition of a tedious subject. It is taught in a very archaic manner in which students are spoon-fed lists of names, dates, and events by heart in order to pass a written or oral exam. The problem with this prepackaged system comes from the sole focus on information that students don't and can't even relate to. Plus, they are discouraged from thinking critically. The system teaches students how they should think and not learn how to think. In a similar environment, students will only compete on who gets an A in class. The majority of teachers prefer to stick to the syllabus as is, just because it's less work. Few teachers make the effort to add extracurricular activities to this pre-packaged program, such as site and museum visits or other activities, as an attempt to introduce their students to Lebanese archaeology, history, and heritage, especially when these subjects are never or barely developed in the syllabus. Universities any person enrolling in the archaeology department at a university, and there are not many left to choose from, except for the Lebanese University and the American University of Beirut, has little to no clue of what to expect, simply because archaeology as a field has always been portrayed as an endless adventure, just like in movies. Orientation programs and professor aren't much help. They just feed newcomers empty speeches and pretty slogans to incite them to enroll in the program. And they act nice and friendly towards students to the point of spoiling them with excellent grades. Why, it's obvious. Low enrollment. Universities view their students as paying clients. The more students enroll in a program, the more the university and its board are happy and stop threatening to close down the department or cancel its courses. And because traditions are important, the same archaic educational system used in schools continues throughout university. Subjects never evolved since, I guess, the French mandate and consist of theory, history, and art history courses. References used for these courses predate 1975 for the majority, 
and never got updated and in some cases even the source of information is a bit iffy archaeology departments in lebanese universities are full of people who talk about archaeology who think about archaeology who read about archaeology who sometimes write about archaeology who always preach about the importance of archaeology but don't do much to develop the field when we think about it archaeology students are not served the education and job skills that they need and end up graduating knowing less than zero about archaeology they know by heart the succession of phoenician kings by city-states or the succession of roman emperors but don't know which end of the shovel goes in the ground on the other hand university professors have no problem sending their students into the job market with shiny diplomas but no working skills they just toss unskilled interns on archaeologist laps who are already drowning in their own work and most students end up not learning much except maybe showing up on time washing pottery writing labels and holding a measuring tape the practical side of the field was totally absent or taught in theory only it was only a few years ago that lab work on specific topics got introduced to the program but not all archaeology students get exposed to these practical programs since the person giving the course if we take the case of the lebanese university doesn't teach in all branches therefore this creates a huge gap in the level of education between students of the same university and when i talk about the practical side of the field i don't only mean field work and excavations the practical side of the field also includes writing reports proposals letters emails cvs resumes papers presentations budgets applying for grants and so on and i've seen some scary stuff eventually new graduates end up needing extra years to develop the tools they were never given personally i don't remember having been taught anything in class that i used in the job market people who have been educated in a rigid system where the cult of a personality is prevalent know very well that speaking up or being a little bit difficult or noisy isn't a very respectable value and that doesn't make it easy to create a culture of critical thinkers i don't want anyone to be disillusioned that reform and change in the current system are possible in this climate it's not easy to drastically change a system that has been rooted for a very long time current reforms and changes are going to be tailored according to the needs of the ivory tower residents and the needs of the political class they are tied to and would look like a disneyfied cosmetically enhanced version of the original idea abuse of power is not completely preventable and i wouldn't refer to the system as a patriarchal or matriarchal system to me it looks more like a forced adoption system where people in power micromanage work and don't mind meddling in people's personal lives just because they are older and know better they are afraid to think about how their world steeped in tradition is on the brink of change 
This is why they use fear and abuse of power to keep us in line. And since I'm not selling false hopes and anti-rhetorics or running after their jobs, I could care less if some people are bothered by what I'm saying. In fact, I don't even care about them. For me, they are a lost cause. And my position outside the ivory tower clique gives me a lot of flexibility to say things as they are. As for solutions, first of all, the mentality, also known as political correctness, has to stop. It has become so corrosive that it stifles any type of progress. Don't be ashamed or apologetic to question the malpractices of your superiors. That doesn't even come close to insulting Fairuz, or Beyonce in case you don't know who Fairuz is. Second, stop waiting for people to tell you what to do and how to do it. Learn how to do the legwork, and as Asata Shakur said, no one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Learn to become independent in your work and stop playing the waiting game. Finally, diversify your syllabus and education. A reorientation of your syllabus can challenge the conventional, upheld, and traditional views that you were spoon-fed from an early age. Just keep in mind, it's never too late to learn and change your perspectives as you learn new things. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropological Airwaves. Nelly will be back next month with the second installment of Dismantling the Ivory Tower Open Mic Edition. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Nelly Aboud with additional production support from Anar Parikh. Thank you to Lauren Muawad for her candid reflections on professional archaeology in Lebanon. This episode features the track Relative Serenity, Hudu Nisbi by Ziad Ravani. As always, a closed captioned version of all Anthropological Airwaves episodes, including this one, will be available on our YouTube channel and a full transcription on the episode page on the American Anthropologist website. In addition to our standard transcription, Nelly has also transcribed the episode into Arabic. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, help new listeners find the show by rating and reviewing us while you're there. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or thoughts on recent episodes, send an email to amanthpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on the journal's Facebook page or on Twitter with the handle at amanthrojournal. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes and on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website. That's all for today, folks. We'll be back in your ears next month with more great anthro audio. 